Hello, and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today we will be spoiling Mission Impossible Fallout, the sixth movie in the very long-running Tom Cruise adventure series. Here to talk with me about Mission Impossible Fallout are Slate's browbeat editor, Sam Adams. Hey, Sam. Hello. Who reviewed the movie for Slate. I did. And our culture editor, Forrest Wickman. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. So... All right. So one of the questions, well, I guess we'll do our traditional go around the table and tell me whether you're you're up or down on the movie. And then I want to do a brief revisiting of the whole Mission Impossible series. Um, you know, nothing in, in detail, but just enough to sort of get us to where we are here in, in uh, episode six. So, Sam, yes or no on this movie? Yes. I, I mean, I think people basically know what they're getting from these movies at this point, And uh, you get it. And what is it? What is that? What do you? What, if you had to summarize in one sentence, what is that one thing you go to an MI movie for? It is, you know, basically just a bunch of you know very cool, uh, sort of real looking action set pieces, um, thinly threaded together with um, kind of spy movie gobbledygook that you can feel free to ignore, and performed with practical stunts for the most part. Would you say that's held true throughout the entire series? Right, that's sort of their stock in trade. Yeah, and it's definitely become increasingly like Tom does his own stunts is. Uh, slightly more complicated than that but that is definitely like a major selling point for these movies and they will people involved with them will talk endlessly about how that being the case yeah i mean it's such a big part of the publicity for this movie that dana the screening that dana and i both attended began with writer director chris mccrory coming in and just giving this whole seemingly very prepared spiel about uh, every single stunt in the movie and like how Tom Cruise got hurt uh, while filming that particular stunt and all of the incredible uh, feats such as what taking like running uh, several miles on a broken foot. I uh, take all of these claims with a grain of salt. Well, the foot was supposed to have healed at that point. It wasn't like when it was freshly broken. Right. He, he said, I mean, the, you know, the 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 line, at least, is that basically the they shot, you know, however, like it, he's every shot you see him running and he's on on a broken ankle. However, you choose to interpret that. And as Chris McQuarrie kept saying over and over again, he does it for us, the audience, because he wants us to be entertained and have a good time. And I personally did have a good time. Uh, I'm, I, I wouldn't say that this is my favorite of the Mission Impossible movies. And here's where I want to go back and just briefly revisit the series, because something unusual about this series, I think, in, in comparison to other oft-rebooted, long-running action series, is that you sort of think of it as the uh, the art director's action series, right? I mean, they're always giving these to a different high-profile action director, whether it was uh, Brian De Palma was the first one, then John Woo. Did John Woo do two? Mission no. Impossible 2? Y- yes. yes. Not yeah, two he did movies. the second one. Right, yes. right, yep. right. Uh, Christopher McQuarrie is the only one who's done two, right? And then yep. it was J.J. Uh, Abrams. Did the third one, and Brad Bird did the fourth one. Right. And then Chris McQuarrie has done these last two. Although, as Sam was telling me, he's been involved, McQuarrie has been involved from the beginning as a, as a writer and as a sort of story aid. Yeah, he he did. I think it's fairly public now, like a, a substantial amount of kind of uncredited script work on the fourth one and then came in as writer director um, for the fifth and now the sixth. Right. So to the degree you can be a veteran of this universe and really know how the Mission Impossible universe works, he does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that gives these movies, I feel like that, that gives these movies, for one thing, a little bit more cred among cinephiles than maybe some other series that just get directed by random hacks whose names we don't pay attention to. Um, and it also gives each of the movies a slightly different flavor. I kind of feel like personally my favorite is, is Brad Bird's, I think. Yeah, it just same. has a certain very crisp feeling. It has fantastic action. It 
actually made use of the IMAX format. It's sort of one of the few IMAX movies I've ever seen that wasn't a nature documentary or something that seemed to need to be an IMAX in any way. Um, so yeah, there's there's a, like a, there's a little bit more. I feel like there's a little bit more experimentation going on in these than in a lot of action blockbusters. And it's interesting. One thing Macquarie has said about this movie, and um, we talked about it a little bit in an interview I did with him for the site as well. Um, that he he was determined to kind of keep up that tradition of having a new director for every movie, even though he inconveniently is also the same person who directed the last one. Um, so he worked with you know different crew, different composer, and and basically tried to adopt. He's not a flashy director, so it's not a, a real kind of dramatic thing that you necessarily notice, but he did try to kind of adopt a different visual style and approach for this one so that he was effectively like a quote-unquote new director, even though he was the same person. This one also, I would say, picks up on story elements from the last one more than usually yeah. happens with these. They tend to be sort of self-contained you know, um, narratives that once they end the characters, except for our basic crew of, you know, of problem solvers, that all those people repopulate completely, right? So like the romantic interest repopulates every time. And it's it's one of those Jason Bourne things where it's like old woman's out the window. Here comes the new woman. But that doesn't or happen James, with these James last Bond, two. right, is the obvious right, right. precedent. Um, but this movie does feel a little bit more tied to the last one, though I don't think you need to have seen Rogue Nation to get to get something out of Fallout. No, yeah. I mean, I think that they they do a good enough job of uh, sort of nodding, like filling people in as as they go. I mean, the movie starts with this uh, dream sequence that is basically only there to remind you that Michelle Monaghan exists in these movies. And if you hadn't seen the previous movie, you're basically like, oh, OK, Tom Cruise apparently has this uh, girlfriend played by Michelle Monaghan um, who... Uh, is still haunting them and it kind of catches you up on everything you need to know. But really, like, the plot is just not the highlight of this movie. And so I I got kind of annoyed by the way it became more uh, sort of expanded universe-ish in the way that every movie seems to be now, but it's also um, not a big deal if you haven't actually seen them. Right. For me, I mean, the issue with this movie is, you know, Macquarie said he wanted to, you know, do something different and have it be kind of like more emotional. So it does have these kind of carried over elements. And it's a lot about like kind of Ethan's relation, Ethan Hunt, uh, Tom Cruise's character, his relationships with these other women. So his his ex-wife, who we haven't seen in a couple movies, but he allegedly still feels some, uh, you know, kind of need to protect and with um, Rebecca Ferguson, a sort of, you know, fellow rogue agent with whom he has this um, sort of, you know, passionate but unconsummated um, bond that they can't realize because that would because that would get in the way of their spying or something. And and I think, you know, the one thing I'm not OK with these movies doing is asking me to feel um, because I just like they're fun, but I don't care. And to the extent that this movie asks me to actually care about sort of the inner workings of Ethan Hunt's psyche, I just, um, you know, would like to see Tom Cruise jump off something. But so don't then, you sort of care about the bonds of care between uh, the, him and his basic group, between him, the Simon Pegg character, Benji, and I can't remember Ving Rhames' character's name. Yeah. Uh, uh, Luther. Yeah, totally. I mean, I care about it. It's I really wish they focused more on like those are the characters and the relationships we care about. And if this movie was somewhat more focused on his relationship with Benji and or Luther, then, it, you know, who have been in all or pretty much all of the movies. Uh, Certainly they've been in many more movies than Michelle Monaghan. Ving Rhames has been in all of them and uh, Simon Pegg has right. been in four now, I think. Since the J.J. Abrams one, I yeah. think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um 
So, yeah, if they focus more on that rather than going back to a more familiar kind of superhero slash Bond girl dynamic, I think that might have been more successful. I mean, this movie is being called pretty widely the best in the franchise and by some people like one of the best action movies in years. And I loved it, but I think that is partly just because it takes itself more seriously uh, than many of the previous Mission Impossible movies. But I don't actually think it's as much fun as the Brad Bird movie. Um, and it's certainly not as distinctive as like the Brian De Palma one. Like I think it's the series is somewhat abandoning the sort of a tourist different feel for different for for each movie thing that it did before. And what it's really clinging to to set it apart, I think, is the practical stunt thing and the increasingly amazing yeah. fact that the ever aging Tom Cruise, who's now what fifty six, yep. uh, is is doing these pretty astounding stunts. I want to talk with you, Sam, too. If if you interviewed McCory, you might have some dope on this uh, as to what it means to do a practical stunt when you are an incredibly valuable movie star whose body cannot obviously be risked in the way that Ethan Hunt's body is being risked in these movies all the time. But let's so let's go back to the beginning. We've got the dream sequence, as you mm-hmm. said, which I had a quick question about that dream sequence montage. Is that showing actual clips from earlier Mission Impossible movies? No, it's just creating a kind of backstory of all the times that he put Michelle Monaghan in danger, right? Right. It is, and, it's re- and it's reintroducing both Michelle Monaghan and um, Sean Harris as Solomon Lane, who played the villain in the previous movie and comes back in this one, although with uh, such a different uh, coiffure that you may not recognize him at first. He was kind of high and tight with, you know, like horn rims in the last one. And in this one, he kind of looks like the Unabomber. Right. Well, he's kind of changed motives, too. Right. I mean, he was with with this group. I don't remember the name of his group in the last movie. The Syndicate. The Syndicate. He was with the terror syndicate who seemed to be who seemed to sort of use what we would recognize as, you know, non-state actor terror tactics but the new group he's with which is called the apostles yes. the apostles yes. right seem to have this even more apocalyptic i mean you can't help but think of sort of you know what's happening in you know the attempts to divide the west etc right there's this phrase he keeps repeating over and over again the slogan of the apostles that's something like the greater the violence the greater the peace that the will come after the greater the suffering yeah and so his idea is to just simply sow mass suffering and destruction everywhere, and that somehow radically that's going to lead to this turnaround. It, it, I mean, it was one moment that's interesting for me in this movie is the first time we kind of hear that manifesto. It's being read out in this sequence and just building up all the plot around this would kind of take too long. But basically, this um, nuclear scientist who's kind of allied with the you know this uh, terrorist group is kind of waking up in bed and he thinks he's been out for weeks after a car accident and these nuclear, these plutonium cores that they've stolen have already been put in nuclear bombs and detonated in in three of the world's holiest cities. And we think that too, right? Yes. Because we hear Wolf Blitzer saying it on TV. Yes. And Wolf Blitzer, who we find out is Simon Pegg in a mask, um, you know, is reading out this manifesto and he gets into it for a couple of lines. And then the the movie just kind of goes off elsewhere and like, you know, Tom Cruise is talking to this scientist and the manifesto just kind of fades into the background. And it reminded me of um, Screen Slayers. Um, is it Screen Slayer or Screen? Slaver? Screen Slayer. Because okay. it's a pun on Screen Saver. Yes. I, I, yeah, it's, it's a pun <laughs> How could you things. forget, I know. Sam? It reminded me of Screen Slaver's manifesto in The Incredibles 2, which is also similarly kind of read aloud while Elastigirl is kind of running through the streets of the city. And you get the sense of like, oh, we're kind of going to read this thing off because it's sort of like the theme of the movie, but you don't care and we don't care. So we're just going to use it as like wallpaper under some other scene. Um, so, you know, that that's like 
kind of another one of my complaints about this movie, too, is it sets up, though this group is like fiercely anti-religious, even though they call themselves their apostles and they want to, you know, destabilize all these systems of belief. And then the movie just completely forgets about that. And it's just about like spies trying to get revenge on each other and stuff like that. Yeah, this is not a movie that is actually interested in ideas at all. Right. Yeah. And I agree that even giving lip service to them is just kind of wasting our precious time when there could be helicopters to hang from. So what's the first big action sequence after the uh, the dream that Tom Cruise wakes up from at the beginning? Uh, the halo jump sequence is the first one, which is a pretty uh, spectacular action set piece. Uh, the plot motivations for which I will probably immediately forget. But uh, its main purpose is to introduce us to the d- dynamic between uh Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt and Henry Cavill's competing uh, CIA agent um, whose name is not important right now because it turns out to like not really be his real name or it's not his the name attached to him that's important. Um, but basically, you know, Tom Cruise has previously chosen his team over those nuclear bombs, which... To be clear, Dana, I wasn't sure if you were clear on this. Those bombs really did blow up, and those places were blown up, and millions of people died. Like that part wasn't faked, right? I, no, it, no, no, they actually do. They do clarify. Like it's there's just a throwaway line about it, but I had to. Oh, watch. Yeah. so I'm confused now. So yeah, no, I was well, too. So they the lost. Stakes were really I was heavy su- for you. For I know, I was super confused. I was like, wow, they really blew those up very casually. I mean, I knew when during this whole Wolf Blitzer sequence, I knew that it was just staged, but I guess I thought that the news part was real, even if Wolf was. I did that the be. first time too, and I was about to write that, and then I was like DMing with a colleague. I'm like, I'm not going to fuck this up. No, because they say right. the yeah. accident was just an hour before the car crash was just an hour before. So, so presumably yeah. they spent that hour. Slapping together the the fake walls of right. the hospital in. room. Yeah, there. Yes. Wow, quick, quick work from Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> yeah. um, props to CNN. They got the Blitzer mask made really fast. Too. <laughs> yes, and they ginned up the CGI of uh, the blown up Vatican and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, 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 the, the so those cities didn't blow up, but they really did lose the uranium cores, like the oldest MacGuffin in the book. So basically, the movie is then getting back. Th- did I say? Did I say uranium? You did. Plutonium? Yeah. That's <laughs> not the most important. I don't think the radioactive isotope fact checkers are going to come after us in this one. I could be wrong. but uh, So, yeah, the MacGuffin here is the, you know, plutonium or uranium cores. It doesn't matter which. Uh, and, you know, the oldest MacGuffin in the book. And then they have to track them down. And the start of tracking them down is they have to do this halo jump sequence for some reason. Uh, halo meaning ha- high altitude, low... Opening. Oxygen? It's low opening say, of the parachute, right? It is yeah. low opening. They say they think they say low oxygen in the movie, but it is. It's actually low opening. So yeah. why so why do you want to have a low opening on your parachute? So I think the point so it is a real thing. Halo jumps are a real thing. And it's like sometimes you have to uh, deploy really low, I think, partly just to avoid being undetected yeah. by to like, be under the radar and you also mm-hmm. don't drift as far because you're not, you know, parachuting. So Henry Cavill, who plays Walker, and and Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise, have to jump out, and they have to wait as long as possible before pulling their ripcords? Is that the idea? Well, yes, and there's a lightning storm, and so Ethan Hunt for once actually decides to be the cautious one and not jump into the middle 
of it. And Henry Cavill's basically like, don't be a pussy. Um, and then just like jumps out into this thing and then immediately gets zapped with lightning and it gets unconscious. And then, then Tom Cruise um, continuing this theme sort of setup in the opening sequence of like, you know, saving one life, even at the expense of endangering millions. Tom Cruise decides that even though um, this Walker character has basically been nothing but a dick to him and there's every sense that he's going to like he's pursuing his own agenda he's not actually going to help with the plan he just wants to like basically he's a cia assassin and his answer to every problem is to kill it um tom cruise nonetheless feels like he needs to you know wake this guy up so he doesn't like plummet into earth and so he has to catch up with him in midair um i think like you know pluck his oxygen tank back in or get it started again and then his shoot to deploy Hopefully. and that's that's that scene i have to say is filmed Really, really impressively in the sense that it would be very easy to quickly cut between one guy in the air and the other guy in the air and create this sense of tension of how they're going to get to each other. But instead, the shots are wide enough to really establish the space between them and to sort of treat the air like water that they're swimming through trying to get to each other. I have no idea if it would actually function like that in a whole, in a halo jump. But and, and that scene is, is impressively well choreographed. Yeah, and it is according to, to Christopher McQuarrie and one may, one may be a truther with this. But according to him, that shot is... From when Tom Cruise um, jumps out of the airplane t- until he catches up with with Henry Cavill and reattaches stuff, that's according to Christopher McQuarrie, one shot. It's a wonder. Um, there, I mean, there is a, a bit in there where the bodies pass really close to the camera, and I thought that was a place where you could they might be hiding a digital wipe, but at least. He says he isn't. And also, so, according to McQuarrie, there's a guy parachuting with a camera, right? The cameraman yes. himself was also die- skydiving They are in, they are the in free time. fall, yeah. And then the, and the focus puller is just pulling on instinct as they're drifting closer or farther away from Tom Cruise in at, you know, 30,000 feet or whatever it is. And that's the kind of thing, if you know about it and you're a movie person, you're impressed by those facts. But I still think that it's there on the screen. I think that in some way that level of craft is is on the screen in that that scene just feels unusual, different than your your average parachuting action sequence might feel. Well, and it doesn't feel, I mean, 90% of movies now would do that with, you know, people on, you know, wires in front of green screen and, and it's kind of CG everything around them. I and mean, you don't feel you know, the weight and the speed. I mean, you know that it's, you know, it gets better and better, but it still doesn't feel um, real. So I think you, you know, you can tell that, um, and it's obviously not, you know, there are lots of like safety measures in place there. Like this is, you know, it's not actually happening the way it looks in the movies. And there's a lot of CG to remove, you know, wires and pads and all sorts of safety equipment and things. So saying that the stunts are entirely practical is always a little misleading. Um, but they are, you know, genuinely jumping out of a plane and doing that. And I think you can certainly feel that. Yeah. I mean, in in our screening, Chris McQuarrie did originally say it was a oneer, And then like a little bit later in his spiel, he confessed that there are at least it's at least three different shots stitched together, which like given that there's this big storm that seems to be CGI and certainly CGI lightning, I th- I think that it's like pretty clear, even if we hadn't heard that, that it's not totally a wonder, but the, the effect is still works uh, very well, I think. And in general, this movie just does a really good job of like pretty minimalist in some ways um, set pieces where like, each action sequence, they usually withhold something that you wouldn't expect to be withheld. Like there's one sequence that has no a fight sequence that we're going to get to very soon that has essentially no score except for the the bass thumping bass bleeding through the walls. Um, there's one long chase sequence where there's no dialogue for I don't know how long. Um, a lot, I mean, a long time. <laughs> there's like not very much dialogue in this movie in general during pretty much all the set pieces, which makes you really sit there and focus on the choreography and and makes them just kind of more intense. 
How do we get to the point, since we're basically just going action sequence to action sequence, how do we get to the point that Tom Cruise is scaling the, the rope to get to the top of the helicopter. Oh, man, you're jumping like two hours ahead. <laughs> this is a two and a half hour movie. We're 30 minutes in. So the next one, so the, they do the halo jump down to the club, which is where we get this kind of like, to me, it was almost, it came off almost as like an homage to Collateral and that you had Tom Cruise once again in this like designer suit walking through this nightclub where there's like a rave going on and then there's a sort a shootout and fight sequence in that club and then you have this um bathroom fight sequence which is the one with tom cruise and henry cavill um henry cavill reloading his arms we should have become kind <laughs> right. of against all the money they spent on everything else and that has kind of become the iconic image of this movie but, for those yeah. who haven't seen the meme how would you describe henry cavill reloading his arms i mean it's kind of you know he's in the middle of a fight scene and he's kind of gathering himself and i think the idea is that he's kind of you know kind of you know pulling his shirt cuffs up or something like that but he just kind of pumps his fists like right before going back in to you know for round two with this with this bad guy and it does really look like you know he's got sort of like you know shotgun sliders on his arms and he's just like cocking them before going back in Right. And there's this great meta qualities that sequence where it's like you have basically Superman in the middle of this bathroom fight, plus Tom Cruise, who is his own kind of superhero. And they basically just get their asses kicked for the first like five, ten minutes of yes. that fight. Sequence. I heard somebody in the audience say, don't hurt Superman. <laughs> yeah. They both get like punched in the throat and then spend like so many punches kind of to the gas- throat. Yes. Yeah. And of course, it's a total canard because the guy that they're doing away with turns out not to be John Lark, who we haven't talked about, but that's the code name of whoever it is who's in charge of the Apostles, the secret terror group. But this dude that they, I think, kill, right? They kill him. In the Rebecca bathroom. Ferguson comes in. They're both yes. they're both right. kind of like screwed and about to lose. And, and he's going to shoot Ethan Hunt. And then there's Rebecca Ferguson's intro into the movie. and, and We must call her Ilsa Faust because it's Faust. the greatest character name <laughs> I'm ever. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you, you're, you're 100% right. Ethan Hunt cannot compare to Ilsa Faust. So Ilsa Faust um, comes back in and shoots the bad guy in the face um, and does away with that. There's also some weird kind of vaguely, I don't know if it's homophobic or homophilic comedy in that scene where the three men are in a bathroom stall together going through this struggle and a bunch of French dudes, we're in Paris, I think, right? The nightclub is in Paris. A bunch of young French dudes come (laughs) in. You didn't know from the fact that they start singing La Vie en Rose. (laughs) So yeah, so after they see the, uh, the stall action and sort of like make jokes and try to get in on it and assume that there's some sort of assignation happening in there they say ah well the hell with it let's enjoy our drunken night and they walk out arm in arm singing la vie en rose which is basically like a bunch of young dudes going to the club in the u.s and they leave singing i don't know someone to watch over me yeah 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 no it i mean and you know and they are i mean it is i think the, the sequence is maybe walking the line and given you know they're sort of persistent you know rumors about tom cruise's sexuality it's sort of an interesting moment but yeah that the, the uh, but they it is staged so that these guys are sort of like maybe ribbing them but playfully and also kind of saying like hey you're having a threesome in the bathroom stall like can we come too yeah um so then they they don't get their man they've killed a guy who isn't john lark they leave the paris nightclub and what's our next well, slug well wait, so tom, this is this is very important because this is when tom cruise decides that because they couldn't get John Lark and scan his face and then get a John Lark mask because he was shot in the face, Tom Cruise decides, or Ethan Hunt decides, he has to just play John Lark even with the face of Tom Cruise. And this is where where I think probably the most important non-stunt moment in the movie happens, which is where we get the introduction of Vanessa Kirby as the White Widow, who is just sort of like a fantastic new character. 
I think. Um, we find out, I think, fairly quickly. You have to have seen the first movie recently or remember it well enough to find out that this kind of, you know, slinky uh, black market arms dealer is supposed to be the daughter of uh, Vanessa Redgrave's character from the first movie, Max. Right. Um, but she just plays this great sort of hint of, um, I don't know, sort of like, you know, untrammeled sexuality and menace and like kind of knowing, cunning, like with this great like wink to it. Yeah, kind of a uh, mischievous. She's almost like a mischievous villain, right? Yes. She seems to be like turned on by mass murder is like how she plays it. Where you later learn that she was undercover the whole time, right? And so I think that was that person playing the white widow. Um, but yeah, it like, it's pretty, um, uh, electric, I suppose you could say. Yes. I'm not, I'm not a watcher of the crown, but having learned that she's on it, I may have to go. And, and, you know, knowing that Olivia Coleman and Helen Bottom Carter are coming up on the next season, I feel like I may need to catch up now. But so what we think about Vanessa Kirby at this moment when she's first introduced is that she is the person Tom Cruise has to trick into thinking that he is in fact, John Lark the head of the apostles. Yes, she's she's going to broker a trade for these rogue um, plutonium cores that are in the wind um, so they don't go to the terrorists. And it turns out that um, he thinks he's just going to make a deal for her. He's going to give her a whole bunch of money and she's going to give him the plutonium. And it turns out that no, she's just brokering a deal. And the other party who we don't yet know who it is, but whoever's selling the plutonium cores does not accept cash or credit cards. Um, the only form of payment they will accept is um, Solomon Lane, the terrorist uh, from the previous movie, who's been imprisoned. And so then uh, Ethan has to break him out. Which I have a question about this. I'm sure there is an explanation. However, if it is like the Allied forces, essentially, like it's America and its friends that have Solomon Lane, why can't Ethan Hunt just like call up his friends in Langley and say, hey, like we got to... Is it just because they wouldn't give over Solomon Lane. But instead, he ends up doing this extremely risky thing where he's, like, faking uh, an quote-unquote extraction and, like, uh, like part of a team that's killing a bunch of cops. I, I mean, I think the idea is, and just a small digression here, but, I mean, one of the things that's been interesting about these movies and the way these have been received is I remember... Certainly when the second one came out and maybe even for the first that there was this great horror coming out for the second movie that, oh, my God, like the, the word got out that John Woo and Tom Cruise had gotten together and like devised all the action set pieces for the movie and then had Robert Town, you know, the great Robert Town of, of Chinatown fame, et cetera, um, had him basically just come up with a story to fit them. You know, and horror of horrors, they came up with the action and action movie first and then came up with some bullshit story. It's like a jukebox like, action movie. Yes. And that is, I mean, I think not only become more and more the yeah. case with the following movies, but as Chris McQuarrie has written three of them now, I think he's actually kind of playing into that more. And, and there are scenes... Um, if you've listened to like he did a really interesting audio commentary for Rogue Nation and there are scenes in that movie where, you know, Ving Rhames' character is like hacking into a computer and he's like, we got it. Um, and then he was saying to the director, like, I, I don't know what it is, so I don't know how to say that line. And Macquarie's answer was like, <laughs> hacked into the mainframe. And he's like, just say, just say it. And whatever the emotion <laughs> of that line is, we'll work towards it. But there's a whole thing in that where they have to like unlock this red box, which then turns out to be like this 
you know, offshore account that they used to pay terrorists. But literally when they when they shot that scene and were like, oh, we've got the red box, like they didn't know what a red box was or what was in it. They're like, he's like, just say red box. And I love Ving Rhames wanting his motivation. Like, yes. can I get the antecedent to my pronoun? Yes. And this is all like as they're shooting the movie. And it's like, well, we're not shooting the scene where we find out what the red box is for three weeks. So we'll I'll have that figured out in three weeks but for now. Just say red box. Um, so. You know, when you end up talking about the plot of this movie and it just sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook designed to get people yeah. from one place to another, that's what it is. That's why it sounds that way, because that is factually correct. And the movie, like, mostly keeps a very straight face about that, but it seems to also know that that's kind of funny, which I think is most clear, like, the time it comes closest to uh, sort of uh, breaking the fourth wall and cracking a smile is in the last lines where I can't remember whether it's Benji or Luther asks how close the countdown clock came on this nuclear bomb to blowing up. And I think it's Tom Cruise just says the usual, which is just like this wink at how all of these. Well, and there's also a bit where once during the scene where it's revealed that that Henry Cavill's character um, is actually uh, John Lark and he's been kind of a double agent working inside the CIA this whole time. He, you find out he's talking to what he thinks is Solomon Lane. Um, and Solomon Lane is kind of explaining this whole plan. And Henry Cavill at one point just him like, do you have to make everything so fucking complicated? Um, and it was just like, and I know that this is the movie doing it on purpose, but it's just so much the part of that movie where it's like, yeah, I know, like this is ridiculous and you don't care and I'm just going to, I'm still going to do it, but I'm going to give a character a line to acknowledge that like you don't give a shit or know what's going on either and it's fine. Since you're mentioning that scene, I think anybody who's going into a Mission Impossible movie having seen previous ones is want is going to want to know who peels their face off, whose face is underneath, how many times has it happened, sort of the face peeling Info. So that's that's one of the key face peeling scenes. And by the way, if you've never seen one of these movies, just to set that up, a ridiculous technology that they somehow have in this otherwise not that futuristic world is that you can just quickly scan someone's face with this dot matrix computer program and immediately whip up this ultra lifelike latex mask, which basically means that you look exactly like that person. And stick Plus, like basically like yeah. a butterfly bandage on their vocal on their throat and then they can that's perfectly right. mimic it's a their voice, voice mask too. as yeah. well. Yeah. So that happens uh, notably. It happens a few times, but it happens most notably in that scene where they have Solomon Lane, um, you know, held up in a in a dark site somewhere. Do you want to walk us through that? Bit? Right. Well, I think I mean, there's a there's a couple of times, but it's I mean, I had actually forgotten this because I'm not too sort of steeped in the M.I. lore, but I kind of have been given to understand it was kind of a running joke through the three movies that Simon Pegg's character never gets to wear a mask and kind of keeps complaining like why don't I ever get to do that he's never done a face peel before yeah, so he, he so he's two of them in these movies so in this movie so first he's Wolf Blitzer in the scene we talked about earlier uh, and then there is this scene where um, you know they've finally captured Solomon Lane and they're going to interrogate him but first they have to make the swap for the plutonium so they get uh, Simon Pegg dressed up as Solomon Lane and they, and they walk him out the door of this kind of underground, you know, third, in this kind of third man catacomb that they've got him in. They walk him out the door and you, there's a single shot and you see the villain still sitting there. And then Henry Cavill comes in and talks to him and, you know, says all these incriminating things. And, whoa, surprise, it was actually Simon Pegg the whole time. Um, so and, and uh, that is and I went back and I watched the movie a second time, not solely for this, but I was watching that scene closely because I, I thought it's. Like the way these movies usually play is there's something that's a, a trick and you don't catch it. But the second time, if you watch it more closely, there's some little thing that like, oh, when did they switch places? Yes. Right. And right. in this, there, it's just absolutely one unbroken single shot. There's no possible way they could do it. And I realize, 
you know, you kind of end up send, sounding like um, Kathy Bates's character in Misery at a certain point. But like he did not get out of the cockadoodie chair. Like it's <laughs> just a cheat in this movie. And um, in the in the interview I did with Chris McQuarrie, he basically admitted that he's like, we shot a whole sequence where explained that and it was boring and nobody cared. And we cut it out of the movie. And, and you are the first person to uh, either, maybe not the first person to notice, but certainly the first person to find it, it worthy of really wasting his time to, to talk about that. If they cared. I mean, all they would have had to put in is like your classic magic show distraction, right? Yes. Like something happens. I don't know. A cup falls off the table or whatever. <laughs> exactly. And you cut away while um, Henry Cavill notices it. And then you're set. Right. But this is I mean, at this point in these movies, I mean, you were looking for you always know like when Wolf Blitzer turns up in that, you know, the second or third scene in the movie, like, you know, that somebody in a mask and you're just like, okay, but who's in the mask and like, when are they going to reveal that? So that's that's a scene where I think it is a it is a a different kind of magic trick misdirection where they know you're looking for that and they just don't give you anywhere to, to find it. Can I just shout out if you if you are never going to see any of these movies, you should still go on YouTube. We'll put the link on the show page and look at a great montage of all the faces being pulled off in all of the Mission Impossible movies. I think it probably only goes up to Ghost Protocol or so because that's when it came out. But um, but yeah, it's just really fun to watch completely out of context, various famous actors <laughs> turning into other famous actors. And you could really watch like the kind of, you know, the advances in like latex and you know digital technology over the last uh, 20 years, too, because the, right. the, the masks in the first movie, which came out in 96, look uh, a little ropey at this point, I have to say. All right. So we can't possibly touch on every insane stunt in this movie, but we, we of course, have to talk about Tom Cruise running because Tom Cruise running is one of the great memes, not only of Mission Impossible, but of just Tom Cruise-ness itself. And once again, there is a YouTube montage that I've many times over the years reconsulted that's just a fantastic yeah. Tom Cruise running there's, montage. There's actually a bunch of one. I would commend listeners to specifically seek out the one that is set to, what is the song called? Uh, Searching for a Hero? Yes, exactly. That is the best one. It's the one with the most hits, so you, you can't yeah. miss it. Um, so let's talk about Tom Cruise's running in this movie. As we just discussed, Solomon Lane's being held in this underground labyrinth in dark site, and it turns out that dark site is in London. So this foot chase happens through the streets of London using some pretty spectacular location yeah, footage. It's like, it's, I think it's like St. Paul's Cathedral across the Millennium Bridge and then up the tower of the Tate Modern. If I, I don't know correctly. London well enough to know yeah. how uh, how how many uh, <laughs> geographical. We should Google Maps this and just draw it out. <laughs> right. I mean, some of the... how far, how many miles did Tom Cruise my, run? My understanding is the London chase is a lot more geographically sound than the Paris chase, which apparently is the Paris breakout sequence, which is apparently just makes a complete hash of that. I mean, the London in the London chase, there are shots of the skyline where you can see that, like, kind of you know. Um, you know, St. Paul's and the the Gherkin and the Tate Modern are all kind of within, you know, shouting distance of each other. So there is a, a semi-coherent geography there. I'm sure it's not entirely scrupulous. Before we get too much further into the Tom Cruise running sequence, I would just like to briefly make the case for Tom Cruise riding motorcycles as just as good and just as Tom Cruise-y as Tom Cruise running. And like this just does not get its due. Tom Cruise <laughs> loves riding motorcycles. He rides motorcycles in every single movie going all the way back to Top Gun. Uh, and we made a supercut of Tom Cruise riding mo- motorcycles. It did not do as well, but it is just as Tom Cruise. I think the, motor- also- the motorcycle chase in Rogue Nation is like, I think, an overlooked gem among Mission Impossible action sequences. Like that is a really good, satisfying motorcycle chase. Well, I mean, he is because he rides rides motorcycles a lot and is obsessed with motorcycles and has like a million of them with um, David Miscavige, the head of the Church of Scientology, and they ride motorcycles together. Oh, man. One in the little sidecar. (laughs) Uh, um, uh, He's Anyway, because he rides them a lot, he's really 
good at it. Um, and I one little detail I love about his riding motorcycles in this sequence is he does the MotoGP style thing of constantly dang- dangling his foot out, which I Googled. Like, I just it was driving me crazy. Why do cyclists, uh, motorcyclists always dangle their foot out when they're doing turns and stuff? Like, what is the point of that? And it turns out there is no known point once whatsoever. Like, like, uh, reporters have asked a bunch of MotoGP champs about this and stuff and they can't explain it. I think basically it just looks cool and they're all copying each other. Yeah. It's not like they're putting like a weight out on a jib arm to balance it or something. It's no. like, it's a foot. It's like five pounds. It's it not going to make a difference. Yeah. Dangerous. Yeah. Anyway, Tom Cruise riding motorcycles. Yes. yes. Now yeah. we can talk about Tom Cruise riding. And, and Rebecca Ferguson riding motorcycles. Oh, yeah. Because also a, a, a you know, cinematic pleasure not to be overlooked. Yeah. But. Rebecca Ferguson doing anything in these movies is great. She's yes. just a great character and a great actress. Yeah, she's fantastic. And she has this great, I think I wrote this about her in, in the, the last Mission Impossible movie. She has, not, it's not just the name Ilsa Fowles, she has such an old Hollywood look yeah. and feel to her. She could easily just be, have been transported from the 1940s. And that's just such a rare kind of type. Yeah, I mean, movies. she's she's kind of, I mean, one of the reasons they introduced her is when they were getting to make the fifth movie, like they, they felt like, you know, the one thing you haven't seen in this movie is a woman who can kind of equal Ethan Hunt and going back and watching the first two. I mean, it's not that long ago, but I mean, they're kind of like staggeringly misogynist in some ways, like the way that um, Emmanuel Barrett's character is like just shot and like literally discarded at the end of the first movie, the way Tandy Newton's tweeted in in the second. I mean, it's really um, for movies that, you know, I remember watching as an adult, um, but have not seen in, in, you know, 20 odd years to what it's kind of like shocking how, I I think unremarked upon that was at the time, but she is someone who is kind of, I think is, is kind of a little bit James Bond and a little bit Bond girl. Like she can kind of marshal both of those things in the same, in the same um, persona. And that escape from the opera house in the, the last movie, right? In the, in the long gown, like yes, sliding yeah. down that, I think it's the Paris opera house. I don't remember what city. Uh, Vienna. In. Vienna. Yeah. It is, is a really great action sequence, but okay. So Tom Cruise running, is it in that scene that he breaks his ankle? Do we see that happen yes. on camera? It's when he does yes. the roof to roof leap. Uh, yeah, well, he does like a few leaps, and I don't remember what specific one it is. Though uh, anybody who has not watched the video and wants to watch Tom Cruise jump and break his ankle, uh, that is a clip that exists on the internet. Oof. Okay. Wait, do you, I'm, I, I believe I'm remembering this correctly. It was no, it was a news right. sto- it was a news story when it happened. Well, I mean, they've definitely and, said the shots in the movie, right? Like so, yeah. So after having learned that Henry Cavill is not, in fact. Superman or Walker or whoever he was at the beginning, but is John Lark the bad guy? Which I have to say, there was a lot of attention given uh, to the fact that Henry Cavill in this movie has a mustache and that uh, to do Justice League, the reshoots for Justice League, they had to Photoshop his mustache out of the movie using CGI in Justice League just so that he could keep it for Mission Possible, which at the time was widely mocked. And now, in retrospect, I think we know why the mustache was so important, which is that he's the villain. And it's essentially like the evil Spock mustache, <laughs> crucial to his character. What would he twirl if not for his mustache? <laughs> right, mustaches? exactly. Although I feel like your villain mustache is usually a little more of kind of the manicure than this one. This is a little more sort of like, you know, scraggly stubble, like upper right. lip fuzz than it's not, you know. Because it he's has an to anarchist. Be subtle. He's a rebel. Yes, exactly. It yeah. has to be subtle or it would give it, it, would give it away, like yes. right from the beginning. Instead, yeah. it's like just enough of an evil mustache that you start to suspect it, but you're not really sure. So he sets off across London on foot. As Sam remarked, he seems to be walking somewhat casually, so we don't quite understand. I guess he's got a good head start on on Tom because Tom is doing the full-on chopping the air with his you know forearms in the way that he does. When and he we runs. get the best line in this movie, which is just, 
run faster <laughs> to deliver it to Tom Cruise. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, like, as someone who is is aware of the meme and has certainly seen, you know, Tom Cruise run in, in many a movie, it is very good running in this yeah. movie. And they really do, uh, you know, it kind of, these movies are, have become a little more winky as they go on. And there are shots where he's running across this long rooftop in, in London and the camera just pulls back and kind of, you know, pans to the right and just shows you like this, you know, rooftop that looks like it's about 150 yards or something like that. And it's just like, yep, he's going to run across that whole thing. And it doesn't actually hold in that entire shot, but it's clearly like winking towards the, you know, Tom Cruise loves to run in movies. And there's like a shot of a spiral staircase from above. So we just get to see like Tom Cruise run up and like run around in circle. Oh, there's a good joke about that, actually. Remember? Because Simon Pegg's character is is watching him through, you know, whatever high tech means (laughs) on a spiral staircase and is seeing sort of like an x-ray shot of it. And he says, why is he going in circles? (laughs) Right. Because he's seeing it just in 2D. Yeah. I mean, Chris McQuarrie specifically in his introduction to the movie said like, he talked about how this is a Tom Cruise movie, so you have to have lots of running in it. And so he was clearly very aware of that and has um, confessed to it and seems to be going to – he seems to be aiming to have the most minutes in the next Tom Cruise running supercut. Right. And it, I mean, it is not a surprise, I think, to anyone, but I mean, they have they have been very – explicit about the fact that these movies start with and the seventh one, if there is one, the discussions have already begun, but it's very much like, Tom, what would you like to see yourself doing in this movie? And like in the (laughs) last one, it was like, I would like to see myself, you know, like diffusing a bomb that's strapped to somebody. And this one, it's like, I would like to see myself jumping out of an air willy and I would like to see myself doing a helicopter chase, you know, and that then that's what happens. And then you just figure out like, why is he in a helicopter? Who's chasing him? Where's he going to go? That sort of thing. Yeah. We just all have to hope that Tom Cruise never achieves enough emotional maturity that he needs to stop seeing himself doing these these fantasy I feel sequences. Pretty, I feel pretty good about, <laughs> about him staying at whatever level of maturity he's at right yeah. now. If he hasn't reached it at 56, I don't know if he's going <laughs> get there. So now that we've covered the running sequence, where else do we want to go? I still want to hear about climbing the helicopter. Well, so that's the last that is the last set piece uh, of this movie. So Henry Cavill is being airlifted out in a helicopter, right? Well, so specifically, it turns out that the plutonium cores or uranium cores or whatever they are are in Kashmir. Yes, they've got two nuclear bombs that are armed in, in Kashmir. Supposedly there because they're at the base of like this giant glacier that feeds that like provides drinking water for a third of the world's population, right. including India and China, and they're going to irradiate it. Um, but also also conveniently, the uh, the villains and their dastardly plans have contrived to have Michelle Monaghan's character um, who uh, <laughs> like working at an aid camp there because she and her new husband have been, uh, you know, they're both uh, like doctors for a sort of like World Health Organization equivalent. And they, Wait, the villains have contrived that or that's just a pure coincidence? No, they have, they have contrived yeah. that. They were in Darfur and then they get a call from an anonymous donor saying like they actually the, – the idea is – I'm, this is, this is just how it is. Okay, the idea is that, is that they triggered a smallpox outbreak yep. in Kashmir, killing presumably like hundreds if not hundreds and thousands of people solely so that they would have a pretext to then call up Michelle Monaghan and say, hey, we need doctors to come and help people with the smallpox and we'll fund this thing, but only if you go yourself, just so they, they would then be there so they could plant the nuclear bombs and blow up Michelle Monaghan while Tom Cruise is watching to get back at him. Right. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> They've got their priorities so, straight, these yes. guys. They're basically killing four billion people to torture one person. That's Solomon Lane's plan. And so 
Tom Cruise finds himself there. He runs into Michelle Monaghan and her new husband, who are do-gooders, who are about to we ship out. We have to say who the husband is, played by. Oh, who was Who it? is Wes Bentley. Bentley. Yeah. Oh, I didn't <laughs> recognize him with his beard. And his, like, extremely gray hair. I mean, he's only, like, 39 in real life, uh, or approximately 39 or something like that. I, I I looked it up and don't remember the exact age. But, yeah, American Beauty was 20 years ago, and he was playing a teenager. <laughs> and now, 20 years later, he's, like got white hair it was it was kind of strange i think that they cast him as this like old man i mean i really i would love to be a fly on the wall for the negotiations of like how you get west bentley in there to be like sort of you know a cozy mate for michelle Mon- monaghan but also clearly to be a sort of like you know non-threatening beta male with yep, like prematurely exactly. graying hair so that he doesn't actually present like a threat to tom cruise's ego um that was just a fascinating calculation yeah, there. that was like very transparently the purpose of the gray hair is just to make him look enfeebled. But so all of that was just to increase Tom Cruise's motivation to save. What if the Solomon world, Lane? <laughs> I thought you. Were, I thought you were gonna like suggest that like Solomon Lane gave uh, Michelle Monaghan's boyfriend <laughs> gray hair. Well, he also just got to them together off. in the first place. He arranged <laughs> right. their first date several years the, before. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um. No, but the, yeah, so the, and it, I mean, it's sort of what you're saying, like, you know, torturing 4 billion people in order to like just to get Tom Cruise is a sort of reverse of this, you know, one versus the many thing that's like threaded through the movie. And it sort of kept, I may have been watching The Good Place too much recently, although not yeah. that that's possible. Um, but it does, the movie does this thing where it kind of alludes to these like. The fullest, trolley problem, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. In so fact, like, Ving Rames at one point is a, he, he could be sacrificed in order to get the plutonium cores or whatever. Yeah, he right? uses the phrase the greater but Tom good. Tom won't do it. At right. one point. But then, but it's just a, kind of an idea that like floats in the movie. And then it's just like, ah, you know what? We don't actually like care about that so yeah so it's like it is kind of like i sort of jokingly refer to the movie as like what if the trolley problem but with exploding helicopters yeah so how do we get to the point that cavill is leaving cashmere in a helicopter and so in all of his dastardly plans to kill four billion people to get back to one get back at one person solomon lane still leaves the bombs undefended he has two bombs he defends one of them but he asks and but everyone else just takes off i guess to get away from the bombs before they explode so there's like kind of a reason for it but it's one of these classic like dumb bond villain things where they just like press start on the bomb and then like leave it there for our heroes to come save it and the idea is it's a sort of classic like mission impossible team sequence and like each of the fuses on these bombs has to be cut on these two bombs, right. which are far apart, have to be cut at the exact same time. But also this like little key has to be pulled out of the detonator, which basically looks like a walkie talkie and is in the helicopter with Henry Cavill. So that you have to pull the thing out of the detonator and then cut both wires at the exact same time or both bombs will go off. But presumably the reason for this was just that Tom Cruise was thinking, well, in the previous movie, I held on to an airplane while it took off. In this movie, I want to hold on to a helicopter as it takes off. <laughs> and, and I want so... to climb a cliff like I, begin, like I did at the beginning of the second one. <laughs> right. Yes, again. So. Well, but the moment I think I love the most in that helicopter chase is that after all these incredible things, right, where he climbs, there's sort of a payload hanging off of this helicopter by Convenient rope. payload. Why was the <laughs> payload there? What was in the payload? Yeah, I mean, the payload looks just like a big <laughs> bag of styrofoam pellets. It looks like a bag. Of, I, it looked like a big bag of laundry to me the first time I saw it. <laughs> well, watching it, the, watching it the second time, there's a vague hint that they are for some reason building like a nice little stone rimmed path at this medical camp in the mountains of Kashmir, and so they've like 
somehow for for some reason brought rocks up into the mountains <laughs> as if the mountains are not made of rocks um in order to like line this path it it looks like kind of like a circular driveway that for some reason <laughs> they're putting there but i think theoretically that is why there's a bag of rocks tied to the bottom of this helicopter Chekhov's payload yes exactly you know is going to be dropped from one <laughs> helicopter onto the other it's very satisfying when it happens but so but if so he has to scale this rope hand over hand to get into the other helicopter then he pushes the the pilot of that helicopter out, right, after a fist yep, fight. Yeah. And so then he's piloting the helicopter himself, which apparently Tom Cruise actually did, and he learned to fly a helicopter. And we're going to sub- believe that. And according to Chris McQuarrie, he is flying the helicopter and operating the camera at the same time, which I don't know exactly how Wait, he's doing Tom that. Cruise I'm sure there's some the truth to that. They said they like couldn't fit a, hel- a a cameraman in the helicopter. I don't know why they c- wouldn't be able to put a cameraman in the helicopter or to hide a bunch of cameras around the helicopter. Or put a remote control on it because I'm sure Tom Cruise is not doing it like with yeah, his hands. Right. He's got a little joystick like anyway because you can't I don't, anyway. But so that's the claim. Who knows exactly how true it is or whether it was just conjured up to publicize the movie. But the great, to me, the great action moment and and just kind of the (laughs) silly kind of cognitive leap moment in that movie is when Tom Cruise realizes, okay, I am now piloting the helicopter that's chasing Henry Cavill's helicopter while he has the ticking bomb device on him. And then he just doesn't know how he's going to get from one helicopter to the next, right? It's a classic Ethan Hunt sort of thing. Like, I'll figure it out as I go along, as he's always saying. But he really doesn't know. And he says, I think, to himself at one point, I've gotten this far. I'm so close. You know, all I have to do is somehow figure out how to leap out of a moving helicopter flying over the Himalayas and wrestle a bomb away from another guy. Yes. And a helicopter at one point that just like bursts into flames, like the air intake valve, just like it overheats or something for some reason. And then just like, and then he's like, no, I have to crash my flaming helicopter into the other one and like knock it down. And then he does it. Yeah. He's essentially using the helicopters as sort of like bumper cars in the sky, right? And and this all in theory happens because the countdown's going the whole time. This all in theory happens in like about three minutes or something like that, which seems to... Wait, I thought it was 15 minutes. I thought the countdown was 15 minutes. I mean, the whole countdown is 15 minutes, but I think it's already like at, you know, 10 or 8 or something by the time he takes off. So the, the amount of time that seems to go by... Well, things that seem like they would take considerably longer than like, you know, the 30 seconds. Especially because we're also intercutting back to Ving Rhames and Michelle Monaghan trying to snip the correct wires at the correct times. It all it just all would have taken much, much more time than 15 minutes. But so then he how does he finally get? Into, he just they crashed both the helicopters. They crashed both the helicopters and the helicopters happened to fall in this uh, into this like narrow stone crevasse that is exactly the width of the two helicopters so that both of the helicopters get stuck there one on top of the other and Vertic- they're able to sort of too, like, right. yeah. oh and there also happens to be a hook right a metal hook with some sort of right. apparently extremely strong cable that's holding both of the helicopters or at least one of them I mean, it's very much. I, I wrote this in my review, but it's very much like the the kind of the RV sequence from uh, Jurassic World. Park: The Lost World, yeah. where they're kind of like falling through this, uh, you know, upended RV, and then they kind of you know smack onto the what you know the windshield, which is now at the bottom of it, and um, then are just kind of grabbing onto like random seatbelts and stuff to keep from falling to their deaths. Um, 
that I think is an amazing sequence that like yep. more people should steal from. So I have no problem with that. And it's nice too that Tom Cruise gets to work on some of his sheer rock face scaling skills in that scene, right? So it's, in fact, several times he keeps getting knocked back down. It's almost like whack-a-mole. Like the minute he gets up near the little device that he's supposed to get on the edge of the cliff, something knocks him back down again. Yeah, I mean, I think one way that like the character and the way these movies are, are marketed really come together is that um, none of these stunts look easy like there's that's always sort of oh that you know the, the people are so good they make it look easy they all always look really hard yeah you make that point in your review and i love it it's and that's very much part of ethan hunt's character i mean to the degree that action builds character in these movies he's all about effortfulness even right? going back to like the first movie that amazing um langley sequence that brian de palma shot in the first movie you know ethan is like the game is almost given away because of a drop of sweat coming off his brow and falling on this pressure-sensitive floor. So, like, right from the beginning, it's just his physical effort is, like, very much a part of the text. Yeah, his kind of indomitability, right? Like, if there's one thing about him, it's not that he's, you know, the smartest or the suavest, or maybe he's the fastest, at least on foot, but but he doesn't give up. And I think that's part of the appeal of the Tom Cruise running meme, too, is you too, right? It's just that you see how hard Tom Cruise is trying. It's just, like, Tom Cruise showing how intense he is. Right, and I think that's a big part of the the kind of pumping the arms and stuff. Like, I don't know how fast he's actually running, but he makes it look like he's really going flat out. Um, uh, I think the way Christopher McQuarrie describes it is like, because see, they've really come up with just like a set of principles for these movies at this point. And he said like, one of the key things about Ethan Hunt is like, he never wants to be doing this. Right. You know, so all of these, all of these stunts and stuff, he's not like a daredevil. You know, he's just like, all right, well, if I guess if I have to go out onto the highest skyscraper in the world and like, and, you know, climb down the walls and to like climb down the windows in order to get into something, I'll do that. I can't remember now. Over the course of the six movies, has there been a, I'm out of the game, this is my last run kind of moment that he's then had to go back on? Uh, well, when he gets married, I think yeah. that's sort of the idea, but it doesn't last very long. Right. right. That's certainly how this movie kind of recreates it, as they keep talking about how he wanted to settle down with Michelle Monaghan, her character, but that her character didn't feel safe without Ethan Hunt out there saving the world right. every 2.5 years. Which is exactly where the end of this movie goes, right? So after yeah. after they've conquered the cliff face and Henry Cavill has been sent falling down to his death through the crevasse, right? Isn't that how he goes? Yeah, he gets a big hook in the head. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. The hook comes undone and and neatly clocks him in the head. And so he falls off this massive cliff face. And Tom Cruise is just kind of lying. It's funny to me that he doesn't move a little bit further in just for safety's sake, right? Like he climbs to the top of the crevasse and then he collapses in exhaustion. But he is like a quarter of an inch from the edge just because he he likes to keep it that way. And uh, and then we cut to him back at the uh, the base camp, right? Back at the... Right. Kashmiri base camp. And initially, like, we haven't seen him trigger the whatever he has to do with the detonator. We haven't seen him do it. And it kind of fades to white, which is this fairly successful, nifty little fake out where at first you're like, wait, did the bomb just blow up? Uh, Which for the point five seconds between when. Uh, we last saw Tom Cruise reading, reaching for the detonator, and the you know two seconds later when we saw him in the hospital bed, I actually like kind of believed it, and you could hear people in the theater go, <gasps> "Is this a Thanos Which situation?" Is, right, right. Which yeah, it's it's impressive when you can, however briefly, uh, trick any audience into thinking that maybe the heroes didn't win in the end. Yes, because they, obviously they're not going to set off like two nuclear bombs in the like between India and China. But what if they did? 
Right. But so then the very last scene finds us exactly in the place you don't want to be for us, which is like the world of, of feelings and relationships in, in Mission Impossible. So there's actually a scene that if you care about Tom Cruise and Michelle Monaghan's broken marriage in this series, it's it kind of wraps that storyline up. Right. She doesn't need to be in it anymore because now she's she's let him go, telling him that she knows the world is, is safer with him out there fighting. And she's happy with Wes Bentley. Well, and also he's found someone in Ilsa Faust who he can save the world and be with at the same time right. because she's as much of a badass as uh, he is. And so that's a, sort of a neat way of wrapping that up as well. And hopefully that means that uh, Rebecca Ferguson will continue to be in all of these movies. And oh, it, yeah, I hope so. And it's interesting, too, that, I mean, the the ending of this movie, I feel like the mo- the endings of the films have almost like gotten more TV-like as they've gone on. Like, this just kind of ends with all the team together, like, laughing at, ah, oh, that was a close one, Ethan. And they might as well just do, like, you know, freeze-frame electric guitar solo <laughs> yeah, yeah. at that point. I mean, that is the ending. <laughs> Ethan Hunt puts on his sunglasses. <laughs> yeah. Before we wrap, I just have to point out that we completely forgot about Alec Baldwin, who appears in this movie, lives, yeah. dies, gives his life, and uh, doesn't even mention, uh, uh, doesn't even rate a mention on our spoiler special podcast. He hasn't been in any of these before, has he? he oh, no, in, he was in the last one. He was in the last one, the arc of the last one. He started off as this sort of possibly faux antagonistic CIA director who's trying to shut down the, the uh, IMF. And then at the end of the movie becomes the secretary of the IMF. So he is the secretary of the IMF in this one and then gets stabbed by Henry Cavill and dies. Yeah, pretty early on. I yeah. mean, he's a little bit sacrificed for nothing. You know, I feel like maybe they just wanted him in there to, to plump out the cast list a little bit. But he didn't. he's not adding a whole bunch to the Yeah, they story. kind of draw at his death a little bit and he just says, go. To, to Ethan. And it's like, a, and it's one of those moments where, like, I am probably supposed to be feeling something, either, <laughs> but I'm just like, I'm like, just go. Like, I don't care. Just run. So, yeah. Do you guys, since Tom Cruise gets his wishes and he gets to tell his directors what he wants, what do you want for him in Mission Impossible 6 if he does choose to accept oh, that mission? <laughs> well, so he's clung to the side of an airplane and a helicopter as they've taken off. So, what forms of flight like a spaceship maybe yeah, he can like cling. Shuttle, yeah. tom cruise let's like get us yeah we, we don't have space shuttles anymore tom cruise is gonna like get nasa to launch another <laughs> space shuttle into space just so he can cling to the side of it as it goes out into the atmosphere yes yeah, so or maybe he could do i mean i don't think they've done anything like really subterranean so maybe there could be like i don't know like a big you know drill going into an earth into the earth or like a volcano or something like that i feel like that's you know, he hasn't gone subterranean. Volcano is good, yeah. 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 Or, or he so, could go low-tech, hot air balloon. Or submarine. <laughs> I don't think they, they haven't done submarine. Zeppelin. Sub, submarine chase, I think, could work. Tom Cruise clinging to the side of a Zeppelin. Yeah. I mean, he has done some great underwater work, right? Like the one where yeah. he unlocks the safe. That's yeah. what's one of the great action sequences in these, for sure. According to uh, that movie's press campaign, he held his breath for six minutes. And there's a clip that purportedly shows him holding his breath for six minutes. I'm not sure I believe it, but it is a thing that is possible for humans to do. There's, it would be such an incredible story of, of undercover reporting if you could find out what actually happened behind the scenes stunt-wise and to what extent he did ever have stand-in doubles or have to come up for a breath of air more than once every six minutes. I think so many non-disclosure agreements would have to be broken for that to happen. I mean, I think all this, like I've, um, I know, you know, people who've like, you know, worked on the movies and they've like told me some stuff, but it's not like anything I, I can No, you're right. Repeat. And given you know, that Scientology like... is probably involved, like you really don't even want to go down the road of, of asking those questions. Right. That is the thing that makes me most comfortable, uncomfortable about these movies is the way in which they are vehicles. There are advertisements for the amazing things that Tom Cruise can do, which I think 
sort of implicitly, maybe in Tom Cruise's head, is also an advertisement for like the things that you can do once you're clear. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, I think these have because some of the a lot of the other ones that he's done, movies he's done, like Oblivion and stuff like that, kind of come closer plot wise to like you can yeah. sort of spin those as as vague Scientologist allegories, and these like the Mission Impossible movies do kind of have their own. Um, you know, their own sort of emotional bedrock, which is less related to that. I mean, I think that sort of the the masks of it and the way that, like, I think the oldest Tom Cruise ever looks in these movies is the first shot of the first movie where he's, like, actually undercover as, like, an old person. But, um, you know, he he's really, you know, not aging in these at any normal speed and, and generally kind of refusing to play a man in his mid-50s in any capacity. In right, any... which continues to be one of the disturbing things about them and one of the fascinating things about them, right? Yes. That he really has not let up at all. And then there's that, you know, I mean, I, I feel like I should knock wood even saying this. There I go. I just found some and knocked it. But what if he was to die making one of these movies? If he's really risking his life to that degree, I mean, I suppose that given what seems to be the psychology of Tom Cruise, it would be the way he would want to go. <laughs> but um, he'd be but like releasing, clinging anyway. to the side of a spaceship. Yes. But especially given that we see him break a bone and get injured in this one, and they leave it in the movie, there is a little bit of a of a freak show circus side of sort of you know that anxiety of watching someone walk a tightrope without a net. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's not like watching you know like you know Harold Lloyd you know scale the the outside of a building with no safety line or something like that but he it, had a safety line okay yeah. <laughs> but, uh, he actually did there was something there was something underneath that clock tower i mean dana you're writing a book about buster keaton you must know the best example all right let me think of some no in in one of his movies and i believe it's sherlock jr you can see him break his neck there's a moment that he's oh wow slammed onto some railroad tracks by like a, this big you know the way trains used to have sort of water spouts that right. i guess they would fill their steam engines up with again so one of those hits him full strength and knocks him onto the railroad tracks and he found out decades after that that he had fractured his neck but he got up and ran away from the scene anyway i mean there's plenty of moments that he could easily have died yeah, on so, camera I, so i mean there is i think you know some a, appeal the sum of tom cruise's in the appeal in these movies is kind of like what you used to have with these sort of you know death-defying silent movie stunts where it's really almost like these actors are kind of almost literally killing themselves to entertain you like just coming as close as they possibly can um but it you know it does also you know you feel like eventually the even even for tom cruise like the the you know limitations of age will like catch up with him at some point but um he does not seem to show any um inclinations of of slowing down and like quite the contrary i mean the stunts seem to get significantly dangerouser yeah. I, I, let's say that's a word. With um, nary even yes. a nod of sort of an ironic line about I'm too old for this shit or something like that. Right. I mean, it's, there's not really even any acknowledgement that it is incredible no, he, that his I body can withstand I don't this. know if he'll ever acknowledge that in a movie. Like, it's going to be really interesting for me when Tom Cruise is kind of like, you know, forced to go into his kind of lion in winter period. I don't think he could. He, I don't think he's capable personally of doing the Cary Grant thing of just as you know, when it when it, the moment he starts to feel too old for it, just. Less just like retiring and no one hears from him again. I, I mean, I, I, he needs the spotlight too much. But, uh, you know, at some point he is going to have to shift the thing that he does. And it's going to be it's going to be really interesting for me to see, like, what that thing is, because I can't imagine it right now. Well, but I mean, thinking of roles like his Magnolia role, it's obvious that with the right script and the right director, yeah. he can do non-action things that are really fascinating. So maybe there's a lot of directors sitting there licking their chops, waiting for the moment that he finally retires the Ethan Hunt character. Yeah, he just needs to decide to do it at this point. All right. Well, this was a really fun conversation. However many Mission Impossibles there are, I hope that y'all will come in and spoil them with me. Absolutely. I would love to.
And thanks to all of you for listening. You can subscribe to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like the show, you can rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any suggestions for movies or TV shows we should spoil in the future or any other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Danielle Hewitt. For Sam Adams and Forrest Wickman, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Mm -hmm. 